Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows, but uh, right now, guys, what I'm doing is going through this sort of multi-part mini-series about uh, various and sundry uh, Batman uh, versus Joker stories, Uh, just a handful of Joker stories that I've been a pretty big fan of over the years. I've always really enjoyed. And hell with it, you know. Why not take some time to uh, take some time to talk about it? And so, and, and as a matter of fact, this this episode that you're hearing right now, this is actually the last entry in the uh, the Joker miniseries because the movie's going to be. At least at the time that I record this, my plan is uh, it's to release this episode the week that Joker comes out, the movie comes out. And so as a result, there's really not going to be much of a point in continuing the miniseries beyond this point. So here we are. So I don't know. That sounded a whole lot more articulate and insightful in my head, but not so much in actually saying it out loud, so I don't know. But anyway, so, uh, now, today's today's uh, Joker story, guys, I, I have to be honest with you, it really took me a long time to, you know, find the inspiration to uh, record today's episode. I don't really know why, but for some reason it was just really hard to get motivated to, to record this. So, I don't know. I'm not sure, you know, really what to think of that. Uh, the the reality of the situation, guys, is uh, I'm going to be going on my honeymoon next week, and so if I'm off on my honeymoon next week, obviously I cannot release an episode next week, so next week there will be no episode, because I will be off on my honeymoon. So, anyway, but that really has nothing to do with anything, it's just, for some reason, it was really, it's been really hard lately for me to, to find the motivation to, to actually start, uh, you know, reading things and then uh, getting all my notes ready to go. I don't really use a whole lot of notes, but whatever. You know, what little notes I do use, get all of those ready to go so that I can have something to record and talk about. It's been real tough to find the inspiration for that lately. I don't really understand why, so who knows? Maybe uh, a a week off will do me some good. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. But anyway, uh, today's, today's episode... This technically isn't really a a Batman comic book, per se. At least, not in the strictest sense of the term. Uh, today's today's story. This is this is called the uh, the Joker's Happy Victims, and there's not a Batman back issue out there which you can buy that includes this that includes this story with it. Um, to my understanding. Yeah, here it is. Um, to my understanding, this was um, this was basically a tie-in. This is this was originally published in Batman Kellogg's special back in 1966, and so this isn't like I say, this isn't a Batman back issue per se. This is I don't know. It's basically a comic book that was published in conjunction with something. You know, it was. Uh, basically a, a tie-in with something else is my understanding. Honestly, there's not a whole lot of information out there on the internet to be found about this, so the best I can do is just give you my understanding of what this is. And my understanding of what this is, I do remember that there was a time, I want to say it was Wonder Bread, but you could get uh, superhero comics 
insert it into your 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 package of Wonder Bread. And these were not official issues of anything. These were comics that were created specifically for this tie-in. And so my understanding is that's what the Joker's Happy Victims originally was. Now the fact is, for it being something so throwaway and kind of disposable, they've actually got some kind of interesting talent that are that are steering the ship on this. Uh, this is uh, written by E. Nelson Bridwell, penciled by Carmine Infantino, inked by Murphy Anderson, and then colored and lettered by God only knows who, because I guess records like that just don't exist anymore, so who can say? But the point is, I wouldn't exactly call any of these guys backbenchers, especially in 1966. So, all in all, this is just kind of, um... This is just kind of an interesting artifact. The other thing is, um, this is not a completely original story. This is kind of a retelling or abbreviation of, uh, of another story. This is called The Happy Victims, not The Joker's Happy Victims, but just plain The Happy Victims, that was uh, published in Batman number 52 from April of 1949. So some kind of Interesting trivia there. But anyway, so to get down to the nitty-gritty on this thing, though, story synopsis is as follows. The Joker embarks upon a crime spree where he steals valuables from various wealthy victims, including Bruce Wayne. His victims all laugh at him, refusing to press charges because they say it's just so fun to be robbed by the Joker. The Joker then turns up at Stately Wayne Manor, home of millionaire Bruce Wayne and his youthful ward, Dick Grayson. The Joker steals a painting Bruce just bought as Bruce himself laughs himself silly over it. He says, say it with me, getting robbed by the Joker is fun. In fact, it's the funniest thing he's ever seen. After the Joker makes his escape, Bruce reveals the truth to Alfred and Dick. The Joker called in advance of the robbery to blackmail Bruce into letting him steal the painting. Otherwise, the Joker threatened to reveal that Bruce bought a stolen painting. Bruce reveals that the painting that was stolen was, in fact, just a copy. He discovered that the previous victims all had criminal backgrounds, and so he, he disguised himself as a thug and put the word out in the criminal underground that Bruce Wayne had bought a stolen painting. Sure enough, the Joker called to blackmail Bruce into letting the painting get stolen. In exchange for that, the Joker promised not to alert the police about Bruce's illegal purchase, and the Joker also promised to give Bruce two oils in return for allowing him to steal the painting. So Bruce agreed to go, to go along with it. After interviewing the previous victims, Batman then discovers that the Joker had double-crossed both of them by not giving what he had promised. So Batman wonders what the Joker's promise of two oils quote-unquote, could possibly mean for Bruce Wayne. He doesn't have to wait long to find out, because very soon after that, the Joker attempts to vandalize Stately Wayne Manor, home of millionaire Bruce Wayne and his youthful ward, Dick Grayson. The Joker has rigged up two gigantic tubes of oil paint outside the house. The plan is to run over the tubes in the Joker-mobile, thereby dousing the mansion in paint in the process. But before the Joker can get the job done, the Joker-mobile gets intercepted by the Batmobile. Batman arrests the Joker, but never bothers asking where the hell the Joker found two gigantic tubes of oil paint. The end. So, what did I think? Well, guys, this is this story is just tons of fun, and I reserve the right to be wrong, but this is, I, I don't think that this was the first example of Carmine Infantino's art that I ever saw. I think that honor actually goes to a, a different Batman story. But nevertheless, this is definitely one of the earliest instances of me enjoying Carmine Infantino's art that I can remember. I mean, prior to this point, I think I'd seen his art like in a couple of places here and there, uh, but not, you know, there there hadn't really been anything. This really, again, not this story. There was actually, I, I'm pretty sure I know what the exact story was that that was the first, but this story is indeed a 
a, a very early example. And I got to tell you, for the type of Batman that we're dealing with here, this is now officially full blue, true blue, the Silver Age Batman. Carmine Infantino is just such a natural for this iteration of Batman. And one of the things that that's always struck me about this iteration of Batman is that it is very much uh, sort of a bridge era from what Batman had been and going into what he would become. It's, if you read a Dick Sprang Batman story and then immediately follow that up with a Neil Adams Batman story, Yeah, I'd say that's a that, that that is a pretty big jump. But if you read a Dick Sprang Batman story, insert a Carmine Infantino Batman story in there, and then follow all of that up with a Neil Adams Batman story, to me that's that's a more organic uh that's a more or, or, organic transformation, I would say. It's a more organic shift. It's just more natural, I think. And when you, when you really think about it, the Silver Age Batman didn't really last all that long. I mean, it's, I think most people would agree that Batman entered the Bronze Age for sure in January of 1970, because that's when the monthly title called Batman, adjectiveless Batman, or whatever you want to call it, that's when that, that comic book the art style really did begin maturing. And I don't, my memory is that may have actually been a Neil Adams story, but I don't know. I, for some reason, I just want to believe that was somebody else who I, they had permission. So you can't really call this a ripoff, but they were basically duplicating the Neil Adams style. And oddly enough, January, 1970, that's when it happened. So it's just kind of interesting. So, by that, sort of by that logic, the Silver Age of Batman really didn't last all that long, guys. I mean, uh, 19, uh, it began in 1964, I couldn't tell you the exact month, but basically, just about the time that Carmine Infantino and Julius Schwartz uh, take over on on Batman and he gets the, ye the uh, yellow oval on his chest, most people consider that, yep, that's the start of Batman and the Silver Age. And then for me, undeniably, he entered the Bronze Age no later than January of 1970. So that's like six years, or maybe even less, where Batman is indisputably in the Silver Age. And honestly, guys, I even kind of question that, because if you read the Batman comics that were published in 1969, no, they're not exactly dark by any sane and logical and reasonable standard, but it's like at the same time, they're not exactly as bright, shiny, happy as, say, 1964, you know? So they're definitely, like, not dark, maybe just really poorly lit. You know, maybe that's the best way to say it, just really dim, really poorly lit. And so for that reason, it's kind of up for grabs. How long was Batman really in the Silver Age? I don't know, but it was not for very long, that's for sure. Whereas Different people, I guess, have different estimations. Some would say that Superman was in the Bronze Age for 10 years. Others would say 12 years. Um, the Flash, some people would say it was a minimum of 15 years because he was, let's face it, he was the first character to introduce the, uh, or to enter into the uh, Silver Age. And so, you know, he arguably was there the longest. Uh, just on and on and on. You know, it's, to me... If you want to say that Batman spent less time in the Silver Age than anybody else, well, I'm not going to argue with you too much on that. So, now excuse me while I get a sip off my water. And another. All right, now that's probably enough with the uh, history lesson. Now, um, I read the Joker's Happy Victims in a... Uh, as a, a reprint in the greatest Joker stories ever told. So I'm really in no position to tell you what the cover of this thing looks like, 
But I can say that, you know, page one, this is a pretty busy page one in as much as it, it definitely gives you the flavor of what this story is straight away. Uh, this is not a full page splash, kind of like a second cover. This is more like of a gigantic panel one that just sort of introduces the uh, the story. It doesn't even have like an introductory paragraph. It just uh, it's a it, it, it's a, a picture of the Joker. He's making a run for it after robbing a safe. Batman and Robin are are in hot hot pursuit, but the the presumed victim is actually blocking their way, saying, "Stop, Batman and Robin! Let the Joker get away with my with my money. It's fun to be robbed by him." <laughs> and so that's just such a ludicrous thing for anybody to say. You're supposed to read that and think, "What the fuck is going on here?" So, sure enough, the two panels that actually begin telling the story that are directly beneath that. They don't, they don't exactly bury the lead. That is literally what happens, except for the safe part, anyway. Uh, the Joker basically does a smash and grab, uh, bashes out a, a window, and then makes off with a collection of uh, collectible stamps that are valued at uh, $10,000. And he makes his getaway on a two-man pogo stick driven home by his chauffeur, James, as the apparent victim laughs himself silly in the process. So, what the fuck? And the other thing is, wow, a two-man pogo stick. This is just kind of a weird-looking... This is one of those times when I think this story really would have benefited from being adapted into an animated series. And obviously, uh, Batman the Brave and the Bold is probably the best candidate for something like that. And unfortunately, the format of The Brave and the Bold kind of demands that Batman be teamed up with somebody. And honestly, for me, that's always been one of the great drawbacks of The Brave and the Bold. You know, it's fine. And I realize, you know, The Brave and the Bold, I mean, that should be a tip-off for most people right there. This is supposed to be a team-up show. But for me, you know, it's it's well and good to want to team Batman up with other characters, but one of the reasons that I just never really got into the Brave and the Bold comic, the one published in the 60s and 70s, is precisely because of the fact that, you know, doing that month in and month out would wear out its welcome for me real fucking quick. So it's it's kind of a weird fate that the Brave and the Bold is by far the the best vehicle for adapting this story into uh, animation. But the very concept of the brave and the bold of Batman teaming up with other characters, that is what would prevent this from ever being adapted into the brave and the bold in the first place. So, but yeah, as I say, that would, that, that is something that I would be very interested in seeing. So it's not likely to ever happen, but it's something that I'd be interested in seeing. So elsewhere, this is on page two, we get a little bit more of the same. This is actually kind of a, this is a little bit of a weird page. Uh, the Joker basically arrives at a re at a nightclub called the Dude Ranch, and he's got a live steer with him. He asks one of the patrons, "So, which part of this do you want me to cut off for your dinner?" Meaning, or at least implying, we're about to slaughter this thing and serve this thing to you bloody fucking fresh. So, uh, another patron at the restaurant is laughing his head off. But right here, this is page two, panel two. We've got. This is clearly the Joker. He's wearing the Joker outfit. He it looks like he's got green hair. Looks like he's got the way the uh, white face. The whole program. I mean, by this has got to be the Joker, right? And that is that impression is furthered on panel three, where we get a little bit more of a close up view of this guy. He's poking the the uh, steer in the butt with a needle. And here again, he, this guy is. He's wearing the Joker outfit, you know, the purple suit, the gold vest. You can clearly see that he's got green hair and white skin. This has got to be the Joker. But you get to panel three, where the Joker has been uh, apprehended by the rest, the, uh, I can't say restaurant, the nightclub's uh, security. He's holding a mask that presumably he was just wearing, and he's pointing a gun at the owner of the nightclub, 
And he's basically saying, stick him up. And yet he's not shown or even suggested to be wearing any kind of disguise or anything like that in panels two and three. And yet, or rather, yeah, panels two and three, but in panel four, here he is taking off a mask. So what the fuck? And I can't help thinking this has got to be some kind of a coloring mistake or something like that. Uh, maybe whoever did the coloring for this reprint, and that is somebody called Shelley Iber. Whoever did the coloring for this reprint, well, sometimes you just fuck up. I mean, I don't know, but this is, this is just really weird. So anyway, moving right along, though, uh, we how Batman and Robin could possibly find out about this robbery in time to make any kind of difference, I don't know, but they appear out of nowhere, and Robin lassos the steer while Batman basically goes full cowboy, outruns the steer, gets him in a headlock, and then wrestles him down to the ground, and then inside the nightclub, he talks to the nightclub owner, Nick Weston, and that's when the thick plottens a little bit. Batman says, you mean you don't care about the $5,000 that the Joker stole from you? And Weston's response to that is, no, the publicity is worth it. Imagine a steer steak and he brings in a live steer. <laughs> and so it's enough to make anybody wonder just what the hell is going on. So meanwhile, back at Stately Wayne Manor, home of millionaire Bruce Wayne and his youthful ward, Dick Grayson, Dick says, it's crazy. Those people actually think it's fun to be robbed by the Joker. And Bruce, who you can kind of tell is keeping his own counsel here a little bit, he says, who knows, perhaps I'd enjoy being robbed by the Joker. Well, that gets, that little theory gets put to the test in short order, because in short order, also on page two, this is in panel four, Alfred hangs up a painting of, I don't even know who this is supposed to be. Uh, it, it, it's basically just called the Laughing Cavalier, but it makes me wonder if this is actually supposed to be based on some other painting, and then this is a, uh, I don't know. Anyway, so... Alfred's in the process of, of uh, hanging it up when the Joker appears out of nowhere. And this, again, this is just kind of a weird element of the story here. He gasses Alfred, Dick, and Bruce, and it doesn't seem like... It doesn't seem like the gas, or whatever this is, has any effect on them. So it's like, if it has no effect on them, why gas them? And... If Bruce has been gassed, presumably this would be laughing gas, so why would the Joker blackmail him into laughing later on, you know, or earlier, I should say. So, I mean, it's like, I get the idea This is there's some kind of weirdness that, that's going on either with the script or with the art, one of the two, but somebody didn't get a memo here. There's not supposed to be any gas coming out of the Joker's palate. You know, Bruce is, he's laughing of his own free will, put it that way. And it just, I don't know, it's just, it's kind of weird, and it's not really clear in the art, like, what exactly is supposed to be going on here. So, anyway, maybe I'm overthinking it, though. I don't know. So, anyway, uh, getting into page four, the Joker makes his getaway, and Alfred just kind of demands to know, dude, what the hell's going on? You can switch to Batman right now and stop him. Bruce is still laughing. Ah, ha, ha, that's actually the, that's the funniest thing I've ever seen him go. Who cares? Blah, blah, blah. Robbery's a play. That's panel two. Panel three, Bruce instantly breaks character. He's like, ah, no, forget about it. Calm down, Dick. The painting's a copy that I made. You see, I found that, St uh, found that Stark, one of the earlier victims, and Weston, the nightclub owner, uh, they both had police records. Stark, uh, Stark had a police record, and, and Weston was an ex-gangster. So I disguised myself as a thug and mixed with some uh, Gabby Hoods in a nearby bar. And here you can see... He, this character that Bruce is disguised as, he's not called Matches Malone. But I guess if you want him to be Matches Malone, then he is Matches Malone. And he says, yeah, Wayne paid $15,000 for the 
for a painting that some guy stole from a museum. And some other lowlife in the bar says, good thing for Wayne the cops don't know. So somehow the Joker finds out about all that, personally calls Bruce at Wayne Manor, stately Wayne Manor, home of millionaire Bruce Wayne and his, and, uh, his youthful ward, Dick Grayson. And the Joker says, Wayne, let me steal your painting so I can make a sap out of Batman, and I won't tip the police about how you got it. What's more, I'll return two oils for it. And so, there you go. That's, that's the game right there. And so, again, it's enough to make you wonder. You know, the Joker goes on to say, have your ward and butler as witnesses and laugh at me. So, if... Bruce was being blackmailed into laughing at the Joker. Why would the gas have ever been necessary? I assume this is laughing gas. So if it's not laughing gas, what the fuck is it, you know? And why did it seemingly not do anything? And again, maybe I'm overthinking it, but it's just... I get the idea that somebody... Like some wires got crossed somewhere in the story here. And... Basically, this isn't, this didn't really go, this didn't, the production of this comic book didn't exactly go as intended. I don't know. Like, whose fault is this? Is it Bridwell? Is it Infantino? Hell, is it the letterer? I don't know. Something. So, it's just hard to say. So, anyway, getting, that's uh, page four. Getting into page five, uh, Batman catches up with the, the other victims. First up, there's Stark who says, yeah, he, he gave me some stamps, just like he promised, but they're rubber stamps. They're worthless. And then Stark at uh, the Dude Ranch says, yeah, I got money back, but it's phony. It's stage money. So Batman's thinking to himself, yeesh, I wonder what's in it for me. And again, this is page four, panel one. Maybe I'm imagining things here, but more than anywhere else in in the story, Batman has a very Adam West kind of look to him here. And even his, his, his outfit, and especially the, uh, <clears throat> the uh, bat chest emblem, this all just looks very Adam West to me, you know? Not so much his, his physique. I mean, this is very much, you know, Greek god statue type of build for Batman, but just in his face, and God knows the 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 symbol on his chest. This all just looks very Adam West. And I'm not aware. I mean, don't mistake me for an expert or anything, but I'm really not aware of Infantino working in a whole lot of Adam Westisms uh, in, into his work. But honestly, the similarities here. This is page four, panel one. The similarities here, to me, they're just a little too close to Adam West for me to think that it's a coincidence, you know? Actually, this is page five. Shit, what am I saying? This is page five. Oops, sorry. So anyway, but yeah, page five, panel one, it just looks an awful lot like Adam West. That's what I'm trying to say. And even panel two, this is kind of Adam Westy, so I don't know. So anyway, getting into page three, though, we, we get a little glimpse here of the uh, Joker mobile as the Joker sets up the gigantic tubes of oil paint. And I just really love this version of the Joker mobile. This looks like a 1930s drag racer. You know, it's got that really long body and uh, it, it's got valves or engine headers or something coming literally out of the body on the sides. And this is just this is just so cool looking. I just really, first off, it's not overdone, you know, it's uh, it's basically just a drag, a drag racer that's been painted purple. And then a, uh, a Joker symbols at the very front. And it's depending on how you look at it, it's really understated, but I don't know. I just really like it. You know, it was a different era now. And so the Joker mobile is, it's more sleek and odds are it's probably a lot faster than the Joker Mobile from the 1950s. Now, I love the Joker Mobile from the 1950s, but this this just has a different character to it all its own. This Joker Mobile here, and I just really dig it. This is just a 
I don't remember seeing it in too many other stories, but um, it looks really awesome here, and I guess that's what counts the most. So anyway, so the Joker is, he basically floors it in the Joker mobile. He's going to run over the gigantic oil paint tubes and cover uh, stately Wayne Manor, home of millionaire Bruce Wayne and, and his youthful ward Dick Grayson in this red and yellow oil paint. Uh, but he gets intercepted by uh, Batman and the Batmobile. And rather than have a car chase, the Joker says, fuck it, jumps out of the Joker mobile and decides to make a run for it. And it's like, who would do that? You know, I mean, you never actually see it happen. It actually happens between panels. This is on page five. This is panel uh, panel four. He gets cut off. Panel five, you see him making a run for it. So between panels four and five, he hops out of the Joker mobile and just hauls ass across the lawn. And it's just like, who would do that? You wouldn't at least try to outrun Batman. So I don't know. Whatever. It's just kind of weird. So page six, Batman runs over the the uh, uh, tubes of paint himself. Robin pointed him at the Joker. Batman runs him over. And this, of course, douses the Joker in paint. And he's laying miserable in the uh, in the grass. And... I don't know. I mean, it's just here again. I have to wonder, where the hell do you buy gigantic tubes of oil paint like that? Because they even have markings on them. Like there's printing. They have labels. You know, it says artistic oil paint, yellow, artistic oil paint, red. Where the fuck do you buy these? You know, and uh, obviously it's kind of beyond the scope of this story to answer that question. But it, I do kind of wonder. So... Anyway, and so that's pretty much uh, that's pretty much the end of end of the story. So now this episode is actually running a bit short. So I think what I'm going to do is uh, dig into the old mail sack. Let's just I think we've probably got time for some uh, uh, feedback here. So just bear with me while I vamp for time and act like I knew this was going to happen. And just keep on rambling and rambling while I pull up uh, my Google mailbox and find something chosen a little bit at random here and uh, uh, talk about that. And again, hopefully make it sound like all of this was uh, completely planned, completely uh, uh, rehearsed on my part. I knew exactly that I was going to be doing this, but chose not. To. Okay, here we go. All right, so this uh, this email, this comes from my old friend, Fanboy Emus Prime. Uh, the title of this email is The Sleeper and the Penguin. And guys, just to tell you how far behind I am on uh, feedback, this is dated February the 18th, 2016. And Prime writes, Hey Magnus, interesting episode on two stories just after Batman had been through an event ringer. And he's talking about, I forget the episode number, but uh, this, I th but I think the title of the episode was the actuary and uh, the sleeper, and I basically talked about the actuary and the sleeper. These were basically after nightfall, after night quest, after night's end, after zero hour, after prodigal, um, and I think even after troika. This, these were basically the first stories of Batman, uh, the uh, Batman titles going more or less back to normal. So. Anyway, when Fanboymus Prime refers to Event Ringer, that's what he's talking about. So, surprise the Nolan films did not use the version of the Penguin seen in the second story, meaning the actuary. Tim Burton getting a pass, of course, as this story is several years after Batman Forever came out, like you said in the show. Oh, wait. Nolan would have to want to admit he was doing a superhero. Batman can be many things and done in very different ways, as the era of Batman you covered showed, but he is a superhero. Nolan, it seemed, didn't want Batman hanging out with Superman or the Justice League or any of that stuff. I wonder if Nolan would have... Uh, yeah, uh, and Prime, I mean, honestly, I'm going to put your email on, on uh, pause here, Prime. Honestly, you know, I've got a lot more affection for the Nolan films now than I did, you know, back when they were coming out. You know, I don't know, but for some reason I'm just able to contextualize them a little bit better now than I did, you know, back in the old days. 
But I do think it's fair to say, like, I don't know if I'm necessarily comfortable saying that Nolan was uncomfortable with the fact that he was making Batman movies, but he really went out of his way to divorce Batman from his comic book roots quite a bit. And that much I do think is undeniable. And I think that approach, you know, I think it arguably works pretty well for the movies that Chris Nolan made. But I don't think that would have been sustainable in the long haul. There's an argument that that approach wore out its welcome starting in The Dark Knight Rises. And, you know, anything, any movies that Nolan might have made after The Dark Knight Rises really would have suffered on a creative level as a result. But either way, you know, whether you think only The Dark Knight Rises suffers from that, or if you think none of the movies suffer from that, I think most people would agree this was not a sustainable approach. Now, here again, I don't think that, you know, in retrospect, I don't think no one necessarily did any harm to the stories that he was telling by not, by making them as grounded and realistic as he did. I'm just saying that, yeah, I do agree at the very least, this would not have been a sustainable formula, and that much I, I do affirm. So anyway, getting back into Prime's email, he writes, I wonder if Nolan would have ha would have the balls to do something like the, squ the Squadron Supreme miniseries from the early 80s. I mean, that comic asks the big questions. The questions of what happens if superpowered beings decide to try solving society's ills. It is a miniseries, I think, that doesn't get much love and really needs to be covered on comics podcasts. I mean, it is the Justice League if there wasn't a status quo that needed to be, to be maintained and the writer could do what he wanted. Uh, Prime, I'm going to put this email on pause and say, you know, there are probably better times and better ways of um, bringing this up. Um, and I'm not making any promises here in terms of when, but one of the things that I do want to do at some point is uh, delve into uh, Squadron Supreme. I've got, I've been making my way through it uh, for the past couple of days now. And in some ways I kind of enjoy it. In some ways I kind of, I've got a few criticisms, you know, put it that way. And so when people call this sort of Marvel's JLA, yeah, I can see where they're coming from. I mean, I think that kind of makes sense. Um, I do think that it, it's kind. It, it's sort of like you know JLA in a very Marvel sort of way, you know, and that's not that's not necessarily completely a compliment, you know. But either way, you know, I I do see. I mean, obviously, you know, I don't think anybody even denies, you know, the JLA connections that are going on there. Um, I've got some criticisms of it. I've got you know some other perspectives on it. Uh, Prime. Basically, the idea that I had was to uh, talk about Watchmen, all right? And it was one of those things that, you know, the more I go through my reread of Watchmen, the more I think, you know what? I don't really have a whole lot to say about Watchmen, number one. And number two, what I do have to say about the Watchmen uh, miniseries is it's stuff that mostly has been said by others. So why do 12... 12 episodes about Watchmen just so I can say a bunch of bullshit that a bunch of other people have already said and they've probably said it better than I have and I'll go even further and say that uh, Professor Allen and Emily Middleton they definitely you know went really far with Watchmen and talking about all that and everything so it's like why should I make something that's second best especially as compared to you know anything that the Middletons are doing right so I thought about it, and I thought, well, you know, well, what else is there? And I hit upon Squadron Supreme. I mean, a lot of people call that Marvel's Watchmen. So why not talk about Squadron Supreme? And so anyway, so that's something that, I, again, I don't have a specific idea as to when I'm going to release those episodes or record them or whatever, but that is on the agenda. So at some point, yes, Prime, I will, I do plan to talk about Squadron Supreme. So Put that in your pipe and smoke it. So, anyway, uh, getting back into uh, Prime's email, uh, he says, Squadron Supreme isn't Watchmen or Dark Knight. Yes, the Authority also did that decades later. Still a bit surprised after Game of Thrones went over big on HBO that Marvel didn't do a Squadron Supreme miniseries. 
or along with Daredevil and such online. I think the Squadron Supreme miniseries would be interesting for the show. And I'm editorializing here a bit, but I think he's talking about my show, Trinus Magnus Punches Reality. I just think the Squadron Supreme miniseries would be interesting for the show. Something off the beaten path of top tens and such. For some reason. Not sure why, as one would think DC Universe pastiche used to tell stories DC never would tell, as it'd take a nuclear missile to the status quo and heroes, the status quo and heroes uh, find out solving humanity's problems as messier than they imagined, would get it a lot more fame than it has. And uh, that's the end of Prime's email. So Prime, number one, thank you for writing. Number two, yeah, I, I kind of agree with you really on all of that. That would be interesting. And that's, again, that's why I'm planning to do it. Now, again, triple underline this part. I don't have a specific idea as to when that's going to be or, or how I'm going to do it or, or what. But I do have ambitions of doing it. Obviously, I've got music picked out for it. And so this is something that I that I definitely want to do. I... Squadron Supreme, at least by some people online, it's it, again, it is sort of regarded as it, it is sort of regarded as uh, Marvel's uh, Watchmen, right? A lot of people say that, and there are other people online who sort of take issue with that. There's some kind of push and pull that's going on there. There's some interesting discussion to be had, I think, and so all in all. One of the things that I think I gravitate to Squadron Supreme about, and I don't want to tip my hand too much on what I'm going to say in, in the episode or episodes about uh, Squadron Supreme, but one of the things that I appreciate about Squ Squadron Supreme is how it views power. It, it explores power. It discusses power. And I would say power very different from what we see in Watchmen right and power as we see it in squadron supreme as compared to power as we see it or powerlessness as we see it in watchmen i think they are very different and so anyway that maybe is as maybe that's a good good little tease i'll just leave things off there so anyway getting back into my uh, email archive here uh because, again, this is just how far behind I am. Uh, this is an email, uh, title of which is Smallville Season 3. This was written by Buddy Smith, dated February the 9th, 2016. And Buddy Smith writes, Hey, Trentus. Wanted to say this was a very good episode, and listening to these Smallville episodes have really made me realize how much I missed out on this show. To tell the truth, when Smallville came out, I was still new to comics and slowly getting into them. But first, first, some reason, when I saw the commercials for the show, oh, I think I, 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 I think I can better parse this. But at first, for some reason, when I saw the commercials for the show, I scoffed at them, meaning Smallville. A teenage Superman show seemed to me at the time such a stupid idea, and I felt was just trying to cash in on whatever young, hip teenage shows were on at that time. And, uh, buddy, I'm going to put your your email on pause here and say yeah especially in the beginning when smallville was starting up i do think it would be fair to say that this was very much a uh, sort of a a, a wb uh, teen drama with a lot of superhero trappings thrown into it so it's kind of equal parts dawson's creek since that's the easiest comparison that you know most people today know of or at least remember or have heard of and Superman. So you get a little bit of Dawson's Creek, you get a little bit of, well, you get a lot of Dawson's Creek, you get a little bit of Superman, and it was a safe way to adapt a show in the early 2000s when superheroes on TV were in a very different state of being than they are today. I mean, today, I think you can embrace a superhero TV show's comic book roots with both arms, Whereas when Smallville debuted, that wasn't really true, you know? So, anyway. Uh, getting back into Buddy's email, he writes, I'm definitely getting into Smallville, and it's surprisingly good. Though, you mentioned uh, Season 4, and it's not so good reputation. I'm bracing myself for it. One other thing before I sign out. 
A potential topic I think would be, uh, that I think would be good is characters that were inspired by Marvel characters and vice versa. With DC and Marvel being the, the main two over the years, the companies have either created characters that were either inspired by the, com by the competition or were done as their take on the competition. I'm talking about characters like Marvel constantly making Superman knockoffs like Hyperion, Sentry, etc. The Squadron Super... God, this is two emails in a row from years ago where Squadron Supreme came up. So, Superman knockoffs like Hyperion, Sentry, etc. The Squadron Supreme, Nova, Moon Knight, and DC's little attempts like Blue Jay, Silver Sorceress, uh, Wanda. Heck, they have two alternate Earths that are Marvel parodies. I think it would be interesting to see how these characters have been treated and to see what has been done with them. Well, that's all from me. Keep up the good work. And that's the end of Buddy's email. So, Buddy, thank you very much for taking the time to write in. And, man, that's just a weird coincidence that two emails in a row... Guys, I did not plan this. I, I didn't think I would even have time for feedback in, in this episode, but I just picked two emails at random that have been sitting in my feedback archive for a pretty long time, both of which are directly or indirectly recommending that I do shows about Squadron Supreme. So, I mean, wow, that's, uh, what are the odds? So anyway, uh, buddy, I'm going to make you the same announcement that I made to Fanboy MS Prime. I don't know when, and I don't know in like what format or whatever. But at some point, I do plan to talk about Squadron Supreme. I don't, I don't know if it's going to be issue by issue or if I'm going to talk about the whole miniseries in one single episode or what. Uh, maybe do two issues at a time. I don't really know what format this is going to take. But I do plan uh, to talk about uh, Squadron Supreme and to sort of make my way through that miniseries. There are, there are a few different ideas that I've got for doing this, and I'm not really sure how best to go about doing it, so, I don't know, I mean, I've got some, some thinking on this that I want to do, so, uh, but either way, you know, that is the plan, and I guess we'll just, we'll, we'll see how it turns out, but, yeah, that is, that is kind of my ambition, you know, so, anyway, so, we'll see, but, um, anyway, so, I think that's pretty much it for, uh, the Joker's Happy Robberies. Wait, is that actually what the story is called? Oh, sorry, The Joker's Happy Victims. So, yeah, so I think that's pretty much it for The Joker's Happy Victims. That's certainly it for feedback, and I think that's pretty much it for me for this week. Now, as to next week, well, I've just said, I'm, I'm, I promise you there will not be a show next week. As to the week after that, we'll just have to play it by ear. But either way, I think that's pretty much it for me for this week. So, bye, everybody. I will see you next time, I guess. Anyway, bye. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so.
Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise! Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And, just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void were prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.